Good evening, everyone. It's great to be able to worship with you all. Uh, my name is Leo, and I'm a member here. And I'll be reading the scripture passage tonight from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we give away Bibles on the back. They look like this. Feel free to take it. Uh, don't bring it back. Um, if you don't have one, also, you can also look it up online. Um, again, that passage is 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with that joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the Lord's word. Thank you, Leo. Well, good evening, Doxology. It is great to be with you. For those of you who are new joining us for the first time, uh, my name is Steve, lead lead pastor here, and it is is great to have you with us. And as Luke said in the beginning, uh, regardless of your church history, we're really glad that you're with us, and who we're all about here is Jesus, and our hope is that you see him more than you see anybody who's here up front. And so, uh, this for the next few months, we are walking through the book of First Peter, and First Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, and if you've read the Gospel accounts where you see Peter's life, you see that Peter was often rash, he was often thick-headed, like many of us, he often thought he was more mature than he, than he was. But what happened with Peter is at the end of his life, he realized that he belonged to Jesus, and he treasured this fact. And so what First Peter is, is Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are scattered throughout the Mediterranean region, and he writes this as a traveler's guide, so to speak, for believers who are living in a culture where there's a social cost to following Jesus, much like it is becoming increasingly the case in our culture. And he's writing to people who are suffering, and so very practical for where we are today, and Uh, As you heard, uh, as Leah was doing the scripture reading, uh, this is the first time in the book where Peter addresses the topic of suffering more specifically. And 1 Peter, actually, more than any other New Testament book, has a higher proportion of verses that pertain to suffering. Uh, You could say it's the Job equivalent uh, within the New Testament, if you will. And so, uh, in these few short verses, Peter lays out some extremely practical principles for what to do, either if you've experienced suffering in the past or if you're experiencing now or if you haven't, it's, it's going to come. Okay, And so here are a few things that Peter gives us for walking and suffering. So first he says, number one, you need to be sober about suffering. Be sober about suffering. Number two, he says, don't waste your suffering when it happens. And then number three, and you see this in order in the passage, uh, finally number three, um, where you see it, verses eight and nine, he says, look at Jesus during suffering. Uh, So number one, be sober about suffering, the fact of suffering. Number two, don't waste your suffering when it happens. And then number three, look at Jesus, most importantly, when you're suffering. Okay, so first number one, be sober about suffering. So what do I mean by that? So Peter says in verse six, In this you rejoice. So what's in this? In this is verses 3 through 5, what we looked at last week, right? It's these incredible riches where he says, according to God's great mercy, he's caused you to be born again to a living hope. So you belong to Jesus now. You have an imperishable inheritance, things that the best promises of the secular world can't deliver on, don't offer you. So he says, in these things, the hope that you have in Jesus, you rejoice, but what? So it's interesting because this is both present tense. You're rejoicing, and yet... 
for a little while if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials. Okay, so when he says various trials, later on in Peter, he's going to talk about suffering that is specific to being a Christian. But here Peter's showing uh, compassion because he's acknowledging the incredible breadth of suffering that you experience in a darkened world. So, I mean, on a smaller level, people are going to unfairly criticize you. Uh, You're going to get anxious. But on a deeper level, you're going to have some deep longings that are dashed. Uh, The health, either your health or health of people you love immensely, are going to be taken away often before you're ready for it. Because we live in a broken world, there's all kinds of trials that are going to come. And second, you see, he says, for a little while... If necessary, being grieved by trials. So when he says for a little while, he doesn't mean for a day or for a week. When he says a little while, this is a little while relative to eternity. So you, affliction may come into your life that lasts for years or maybe the, the entirety of your life. And here's Peter's point. As Peter says, as I write this letter to you, one of the most important things for you is not to be naive. I don't want you to be naive about the the reality of sufferings in this world. When he says, you've been grieved, so that word for grief means scorching pain. It's the same word that's used to describe Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. Okay, searing pain is what he says. And so, he says, you need to know it's, it's coming. And here's what I appreciate about Peter and about the scriptures as a whole, is Peter doesn't fall into the trap that our culture falls into, and that a lot of churches fall into. So there's this book called Brightsided. Some of you may have read of it. May have read it. It's a New York Times bestseller written about 10 years ago. Uh, Barbara is the author. And in Brightsided, what she, so she's not a Christian, and she says, you know, one thing I, I've noticed, she's sharing her story about how she's undergone suffering, and she says, one of the most, like, the central ethos of Americans is an emphasis on positive thinking. So if you can just think positive thoughts, like I'm strong enough, I'm, you know, I'm powerful enough, I can do it, then you can do anything. So she uses examples like if you just use enough positive thinking, you can become extremely wealthy. You can find the mate you've been looking for. You can even overcome incredible illnesses that you've been beset with. And then she says, she, she actually writes a very needed critique of the prosperity gospel in one chapter. I think the chapter is called God Wants You to Be Rich. And she says, you know, just when I go into a lot of these mega churches, just as somebody who's not a Christian, I don't hear them speaking what's actually in the Bible. Because the message I hear in a lot of mega churches is it's not much different than a large corporation. It's like the central core message is something like, you know, with enough positive thinking, you can overcome any obstacles in your life. And she's like, I'm pretty sure the Bible doesn't say that. And she's, she's exactly right. And so what's so great about Peter here is in love, he's saying suffering is going to happen. And notice in this letter, in verse 1, he says he's writing to elect exiles. He's writing to Christians. So he's saying even if you belong to Jesus and you're given these incredible riches, immense hardship is going to come in your life and you need to be ready for it. And so here's just a very brief application here as we think about as Peter's trying to drive him the point that suffering is going to happen. And if you've, so we just started as a church uh, back in October, but we were part of an existing church before Portico. And if you've been with us for, you know, a year or more, we've talked about this a couple of times, but we can't say it enough. And that is 
I've known a lot of Christians who grew up in who've grown up in great families or went to good churches, but there was an unexamined premise they had in their life that if I just am faithful to Jesus and obey God, then suffering won't come into my life. And then they're hit with incredible hardship, and what happens is one of two things. Either they just they they leave the faith completely, or they develop an incredibly dark and twisted view of God. Because, well, if God was good, then why would he allow this to happen to me? And I understand that cry. I've been there. But what Peter says is an echo of the entirety of the scriptures. The scriptures resound with the cry of sufferers. I mean, pretty much every, you could say it's one of the main themes in scripture, is how we suffer and how God meets us in our suffering. And so Peter is just saying, know that it's coming, so then when it comes, you're not utterly shocked by it. And you can actually, you can walk in wisdom when it happens. Okay, so that's the first thing. Very important, be sober about suffering. But Peter doesn't stop there. So Peter just said, suffering's going to happen, it's going to hurt. Sincerely, your beloved friend Peter, you know, he sides off the letter, that would stink. But he keeps going. And so what does he say? He says, you've been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying is there are a lot of people who, who go through suffering who end up worse off on the other side of it. So th- this may be you or you may know someone who this happened to where because suffering in and of itself doesn't make you a more compassionate, deeper person. So a lot of people go through suffering and they end up more self-centered, more self-absorbed. You just can't even see beyond the horizon of your own needs. Uh, you, you, you become a, a much more of a hard person. You, you can even develop a sense of self-righteousness. Toward, you, know, you see people who haven't suffered like you have, and so you may think something like, well, you know, what could you really know about the realities of life because you haven't suffered like I have? But Peter says when suffering comes along, don't let it turn you into a hardened person like can happen but actually because God is a God who often brings beauty out of ashes he offers you he extends to you an invitation in suffering to become deeper to become wiser to become more whole and that's what you see in this metaphor of gold being tested so your faith the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire and so here he's using a very helpful metaphor of gold. So I'm not a goldsmith, but my understanding of the process is when gold is you know, taken out from the earth, it's filled with a lot of impurities. And so what does the goldsmith do? He puts it in the furnace and like, gets the heat incredibly hot. Okay, So this furnace is incredibly hot, and as the gold's in there, the gold doesn't turn to ashes and you know, burn up. What happens? As the gold melts, all the impurities come up to the surface and forms that you know, all that mess on top called dross. So the goldsmith can scrape away all the dross, and what you're left with is pure gold. And Peter's saying, in the same way, when suffering comes into your life, if you let him, God will use it in the same way that, for the same reason that a goldsmith uses a furnace for gold. You see, so uh, your faith is the gold, and suffering and trials are the heat. So suffering comes into your life, and if you respond accordingly, you actually you become a more beautiful person. You become a more pure person, a, a person of substance. Uh, James says you become a complete person. 
when you receive suffering in the way that um, God has you while we're still here in a broken world. And so what are a few ways that that comes out for you to become more beautiful and pure uh, as you undergo the intense heat and pain of suffering? Because suffering's painful. That's why it's called suffering. And so the first thing that happens, or one of the things that happens when you suffer, is God uses it to make you a more sincere... He uses it to increase the sincerity of your faith. He uses it to increase the, the sincerity of your faith. And here's what I mean, because when you start following Jesus, when I follow Jesus, we do, we do love Jesus. We are grateful for Jesus. We want to obey God. However... On a deeper level, we've smuggled in all the other thing, all these other things that we want, and really, like a large part of us just wants to use Jesus as a tool to get the things that we're really after. Okay, so and and that's what causes our emotions to go up and down all the time. So it might be what you're, the thing that really makes you feel secure is your health, or your safety, or your family, or your job. You know, there's a there's a massive list, and so we follow Jesus, but. Really, we've more deeply invested our hearts into these other things. And so when suffering comes, it, you can say it makes your faith more authentic. Or you begin to use Jesus less as a tool, as a means to an end, but you begin to love him for who he is in and of himself. And here's an example of how that plays out. So um, one of Tim Keller's books is Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's a, it's a great book. And... At the end of each chapter, there's personal stories of people who have gone through suffering and how God met them in their suffering. And there's this one story that I read about this couple named uh, Mark, Mark and Martha. And what they said was they were only in their 40s, and they were active, they were healthy, they had four children, and you know, basically the world ahead of them. And out of nowhere, the husband and dad, Mark, he got diagnosed with ALS. And very quickly... He lost all of his capacities except the ability to move his eyes. So he, he got put in a wheelchair, and he, he can't speak. In fact, part of his story, he was using a computer that can detect eye movements, and so he was writing out his story that way. And this was, it was a heartbreaking story. And, but what was amazing is what they said. So Martha, the wife, she said, this is the most unbelievably painful thing I've ever gone through. Like many days, I don't even know if I can make it another day. But one thing God has shown me is before this happened, I would have said I'm grateful for Jesus, but really what I was most grateful for was my husband and my kids and the fact that, you know, we could travel, do whatever we wanted as a family. And I I like those things more than Jesus, if I'm being honest. But she said, now that a lot of those things have been taken away, yes, there is searing pain, but there is a unbelievable sweetness and wholeness to my relationship with Christ and in the marriage between Mark and me and with our kids that we could not have hap- that we could not have if this hadn't have happened. And what Mark said is he said, you know, especially as he was put into a wheelchair and losing all his faculties, he he yelled at God. And he said, you know, God, like what the heck are you doing? I feel like I'm just in the prime of, you know, a very honest cry. I'm in the prime of my life and I feel like you're pulling me out of the game. He was an athlete, avid athlete growing up. And he said what God taught him was, you know, Mark, actually for most of your life you've been on the sidelines, and it's today that you're actually fully in the game. And Mark said, you know, similar sentiments to his wife, and then what he added is he said, honestly, if, if you were to offer me 10 more years of a healthy life, 
or having gone through what I've gone through to have what I have now with Jesus and with my family, I would choose this every single time. What, what, what was happening? What's happened? God's turned them into gold. He's made them more beautiful, made them deeper, made them wiser. Okay, their faith has actually become more sincere, more authentic. So that's the first thing suffering can do if you let, if you let God do it. Number two, what does God do in, in suffering is he makes your faith more steadfast. And so you see this here in verse 7 where he says the tested genuineness of your faith. So suffering both serves as an authentication tool to see if your faith really is genuine. But also what it does is it tests the genuineness of your faith in terms of like by putting you through trial. Your faith becomes more genuine and more steadfast. And so here's an example of this. So one of my friends, he... He used to work in youth ministry, and while he was working in youth ministry, he went on a youth retreat. And those of you who grew up in the church, you know that youth retreats follow the same formula pretty much every time. So what you do is you choose a speaker, often more on the basis of their humor and their charisma, you know, rather than, you know, are they a person, like, do they speak things of substance? And you, you keep the kids up really late, and you wake them up early, and you keep them active all day. So by the end of the retreat, they're just exhausted. And then at the end of the retreat... Like the final night, you play this really emotional music. And then, you know, you have somebody say, like, who wants to give their lives to Jesus? And all the kids come forward because, really, they're just so delirious from, from, <laughs> it's, it sounds cynical, but, but it's true, okay? A lot of you know this. Okay, so they all come forward because they're so delirious. And as so my friend said, he's, you know, he's on a youth retreat, and he's seeing this play out again. And, but he said the speaker did something unbelievable. And I can't believe he did this, but so the final night, the speaker he says, all right, you know, who of you, you know, there's a bunch of middle schoolers, like, who of you wants to give your life to Jesus and become a full-time missionary in China? And you're like, 90% of the kids stand up. And the speaker goes, every one of you sit down now. You have no idea what you're talking about. Now, I, don't, I think that's a little heavy-handed. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with his, meth- with his method. But the principle of what he was getting at is true. And here's the principle. You don't really know if your faith is steadfast or genuine until you actually have to be steadfast or genuine in your faith. You see, like, until incredible pain actually comes into your life and you have to cling to Jesus with everything that you have and believe in his promises more than you've ever had to do and everything else is going dim, you don't really know if you're steadfast under trial. In the same way, you know, when you first say your vows at a Wedding ceremony, you say, yes, you know, I promise to be patient with you, and I promise to be long-suffering towards you. And, yeah, you mean it, but until your spouse is doing that thing for literally, like, the 300th time, you know, 10 years into marriage, 15 years into marriage, and they, they haven't changed much, in a, like, it's then, right, where you see, am I, am I really patient with you? Are you really patient with me? Am I really long-suffering toward you? And so Peter's saying when, when incredible suffering comes along, a, that's when you see, is it really genuine? But B, it, it creates and you become the type of person where you become so much more steadfast. And that's why he says, gold eventually will perish. But when your faith is tested to be genuine, it will last all the way into, into eternity. What's God doing? He's turning you into gold. He's turning you into something even more precious than gold. And finally, number three, like what's the third way that God makes you more complete in suffering is suffering drives you deeper into your true hope. 
Okay, so in the first, in the verses three through five, we looked at last week, where Peter says, "You have a living hope that doesn't perish, spoil, or fade." Our problem is, it's only hope, it's only trust in Jesus Christ that will allow us to withstand the storms of life, because it's only Christ that can't be touched by the things of this world. But when suffering comes, because suffering can and will take away anything and everything in your life, your health, the people you love, uh, everything else you look to for stability, except for Jesus. And so what happens when suffering comes? So a lot of us are like this. Um, so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, you know, Jesus gives an image where he says, if you follow me and you put your trust in me, you're like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. You know, when the storms come, your house will stay stable. But if you don't listen to me, uh, if you don't follow me, you're building a house on sand. So when storm comes, the foundation of your life isn't stable and you're going to be washed away. And I think for a lot of us who are followers of Jesus, how we do that is we don't fully build our house on the sand, but we put like 60% of our house on the sand. You know, and so what happens is we have like 40% of our house on the rock or 80% of our house on the rock, you know, and then the other you know, 60, 40% or whatever is on sand. And so what happens is when suffering comes, inevitably the things that we're really trusting in that aren't of Jesus to sustain us, as those things start to get wiped away, what we do is we like kind of like throw our shoulder against, you know, this wall of the house to like push our house over more onto the rock, you see. And so the more suffering comes into your life, what it does is it drives you deeper into the, into the true hope, into the default hope, that, you've had the, that you should have had the entire time. Where, yes, you, you love your family, you, you have high hopes for your career and your love life and so forth, but deeper than all of that is your reliance on Jesus Christ. So God's turning you into gold. And so, as, as God does this in you, as he makes your faith more sincere, as he makes you a more steadfast person, as he drives your hope deeper into the true joy by which you should be living... You're becoming a freer person. You're becoming a happier person. You're becoming a less self-absorbed happen, less self-absorbed person. Uh, in many ways, you become more wise and helpful and useful in the lives of other people who are suffering and hurting. Why? You've been there. You know. You can help them. He's turning you into something even more precious than gold. When you don't waste your suffering. And so I, I don't know for, for a lot of you if you're going through something now or maybe you've gone through something in your past and what Peter is pleading with you to do is to not waste your suffering. He says, remember, Peter doesn't tell you to just ignore it and push it in a drawer. He says, it, it hurts, I know, and, and Peter does know. But he says, use it. Let God use it in your life to turn you into something more precious than gold and, act, and you can be more useful in the lives of other people. These are things that the the modern culture can't offer you in suffering because modern culture places all of its hopes and meaning in this world. So when suffering comes, it can take any of those things away. Okay, so finally, what does Peter say, say is he says, in suffering, not just be sober about it, not just don't waste it, but most of all, look at Jesus during suffering. So he says, your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, do not, though you do not now see him, you believe in him 
and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Isn't that a, isn't that a beautiful verse? And so Peter, Peter saw Jesus, but he is telling his readers, and by extension you and me, that even though I saw Jesus, it's not like I have something that you don't. You know, in the end of John 20, Jesus says, it's actually blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe in me. Like in some ways we are more blessed, in some ways we're more blessed than Peter because we haven't seen Jesus, but we've come to know him and love him through the witness of the apostles in scripture, through other people telling you about him in your life. And what's Peter ultimately telling them? He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Peter's reminding them about who they already love. And here's why Peter is emphasizing the, the, the love they have for Jesus. Because Peter knows that when you are undergoing suffering, when you're undergoing pain that seems so intense, you don't know if you can bear it anymore. What, the thing that you need more than advice, the thing that you need more than you know, telling somebody to just pull your shoulders back and keep, keep your head up, the thing that you need more than money, because often money can't solve intense suffering, the thing that you need more than anything is love. Because there's no more powerful force in the world than love and companionship and friendship. And Peter's saying it's in Jesus Christ where that's exactly what you have. Because what you need is somebody who says, I'm with you and I'll never leave you. That's what you need during incredible suffering. And for, for Jesus, so Jesus suffered immensely throughout his life, but Nothing compared to the suffering that Jesus underwent on the cross. Because while, while having your health taken away hurts, and it do, while, while, having, while losing your job hurts, while you know, getting anxious hurts, um, being criticized hurts, nothing compares to being completely swallowed up in darkness and being cut off from God. And that's what was happening with Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus was on the cross, he had a choice. He could either smite everyone around him and get down and save himself, but in doing so, abandon you. Or he could stay. And in the greatest act of companionship and friendship and love, he looked at you and he stayed. He stayed. He suffered the worst so that he could give you his best. So that you could have his resurrection power and his presence come into your life and know and have a promise that you will never be forsaken by God because Jesus was forsaken for you. Is that a gift more? Is that a gift that gives you inexpressible joy? Yeah, I think so. That's why Peter says it causes you to, to rejoice with a joy inexpressible. And more than that, the icing on the cake, he says. Your faith will, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you read that, what it looks like is at the end of all things, you will give praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Now that's true, but actually the grammar of the sentence, what it, how it reads is, you will receive honor and glory and praise from, from Jesus Christ at the end of all things. And so what Peter says is, you know what Jesus' living hope was? You know the thing that drove Jesus Christ to come to earth and go to the cross for you and raise from the dead for you? Was so at the end of all things, he could shower you in praise and honor and glory because you were the living hope of Jesus. 
And so the deepest longings of your heart, the things that you're looking for in your job and other people, all of those things will finally be fulfilled when at the end of your history, your great shepherd, your king, your prince, your friend is waiting you with open arms and he showers you with glory and honor and praise. So be sober about suffering. It's going to happen. But don't waste it because God offers you an incredible invitation and opportunity. And keep looking to Jesus so that your faith will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ and give you joy inexpressible. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for these incredible words of assurance that you continue to give us through Peter and continue to blow us away with in these first 12 verses of Peter, Lord. And um, I pray that for anybody here who is suffering, and especially if they don't really know why, um, I don't have anything I can give them, uh, but I just pray that you will minister to them in a supernatural way and most of all help them to see Jesus who gave up everything so that they can have everything. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.